Hello everybody and welcome to episode 14 of Here We Go Again Israeli Politics. This week we will be doing an in-depth drill down into the Judea and Samaria area of Israel, the Yudave Shomron area. We will be discussing the history of Judea and Samaria, the legal questions, the legal ramifications, areas A, B, and C, and the future look on this area. We will also have an interview, a powerful and emotional interview with Ben Goldstein, a security expert in the area, which really deals with the day-to-day -day security of our soldiers and medics that are protecting us in Judea and Samaria. So look out for that interview in the continuing of the episode. If you are interested in hearing this drill down, please continue listening. If you'd like to skip forward to Ben's interview, you can skip to minute 30 of the episode. We hope you enjoy. This is Here We Go Again. So, over the past week, there was a report on the news that for the past eight months, the committee that is meant to approve new housing and new building in Judea and Samaria has not met. Um, as a result, we thought it would be a good opportunity to take uh, time and to truly clarify this very complex and uh, contentious issue that faces our country today. Um, <clears throat> and we thought it might be a good opportunity also to focus on the history behind this and all the different opinions so we truly have our facts on the ground before we get into a serious debate on the matter. Because there's a long and very complicated history that surrounds any, any discussion over Judea and Samaria and anything in the West Bank in general. Um, and later on in the show we'll even have an interview with Ben Goldstein on some of the security issues that face um, the soldiers and the volunteers um, surrounding uh, these communities today. Before we begin on the history of the matter, um, let's go through some of the facts. Uh, the area that we're discussing, discussing is about uh, 5,700 square kilometers. It, it encompasses around 20% of the state of Israel. Um, the Jewish area is 114 square kilometers. There are 435,000 Jewish residents there today. That will come um, be very important later when we discuss um, the history of Gush Katif. And there are 1.8 million Arab um, residents in these areas to date. Um, this is um, this information is by the Yesha Council. Um, it came out in 2020. So let's begin with some of the history of the area. What is this area? Why is it important? This area is where many of the stories of the Bible took place. Um, from the patriarchs walking around in uh, Hebron um, to uh, Yaakov buying the land of Shechem. Um, to King David having his first dynasty in this area, to um, Rachel being buried around here. This is the heart of the land. It's the center geographically of the land, um, and it's where most of the stories happened. This is where they walked, where they lived, where all of, all of their stories and all of their history took place here. This will be very important in a minute when we'll discuss why different countries view Israel had a right to this land. So this brings us back to um, Israel coming, the Jewish people coming back to the land in the 1900s. Um, Post-World War I, after the Versailles Treaty, in San Remo there is a, con a congregation of the main powers of the world that are attempting to decide what to do with all of the countries and all the lands that they now own after the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the German-Austrian Empire is no longer in power, and they have to decide what to do. Many of the countries we know today were founded at this meeting, and their basis for their power comes from this meeting and from the 
decisions of the power to be at the time to allow their forming. For example, none of the 22 Arab states that exist today existed prior to this meeting. Syria and Lebanon and such were granted their power from this meeting, from the decision. But there were some countries in this place that the, <clears throat> the powers that be thought were not ready for independence. Um, they were not developed enough and there was too many inner conflicts. So each of the powers, France, Britain, uh, and on, were given parcels of land to watch over and to develop the people in there so that they'd be ready to receive independence and form their own form of government. Um, the land of Israel, what they called the land of Palestine at the time, um, was divvied up to the British mandate. They were given a mandate by the League of Nations to build a home for the Jewish people. Um, they used the Balfour, Balfour Declaration, which was given in 1917, which um, stated that they would hope to build in the land of Israel a Jewish homeland for the people, uh, for the Jewish nation. Um, and this was meant to be in their historic homeland. And to quote from the decision in San Remo, the reconstituting of their historic homeland. Obviously, their historic homeland included the heart of the land and everything surrounding it because you cannot just simply take the center of the country where all of the stories of the Bible took place and claim that is not part of their historic homeland. Now, all of that is nice and good when we claim to a historic and legal argument, especially since this is where most, as we mentioned, most of the states of the world today claim their legal authority from. And then the UN, this is post-World War II, um, the British decide that they do not want this mandate anymore. Um, there are too many conflicts in the area. The, it's too heated. They don't want to deal with it. The UN decides to come up with a plan to split the, man, uh, the land between the Arabs in the area and the Jews. Um, Judea and Samaria would be given to the Arabs. Um, and the Israelis and, and a whole other territory split. Um, the Israelis agree to this, um, but there is a war. Uh, the settlements in the area are completely wiped out. Everything in the Judea and Samaria, Kfaretzion, um, historically, is wiped out the day before the founding of Israel. And um, this became the, the reason for the Remembrance Day of the Jewish uh, soldiers because of the fall of Kfaretzion, which is in Judea and Samaria today. It was rebuilt. Um, after the split, um, there is 19 years where Israel has no control over the land after the war is over until the 1967 war. In 1967 war, um, Israel fights with the five surrounding nations. They win a resounding miraculous victory and they take back the land of Judea and Samaria and the Golan Heights and the Galil. Now, what's important here is that during the time of those 19 years, the king of Jordan, Abdallah, decided to give out writs of ownership to the land to anybody who would take them. He would give anybody who could, he would give them ownership of the land. Um, so that one day, if this ever, if that ever happened, that Israel took back the land, these people already technically own this land. Um, once we conquered the land, Israel decided not to annex the territory, mainly for political reasons. Um, the left at the time, which controlled the, the government, had hoped that by not giving back the land, they could one day give it back and gain um, peace by that process. So they decided not to annex any of the land. They only annexed part of Jerusalem. So you're saying their original plan was to keep the land to give away the land? 
He's saying they were not interested in keeping the land. They were planning to use it for peace. Therefore, that's the reason they kept it in the first place. Yes, and there was also, as we'll get to this, many years where nothing's actually built in this area. There were quite a few years prior after the um, 67 war where the Israeli government doesn't want anything built. They keep a military presence there, but they don't want anything held there. It's only post the Yom Kippur War okay, that they decide that the time has come for to the settlements to be built and for people to move back there. Um, and we'll get to how they do that in a second. But the main idea was we want to hopefully get to peace. They also feared political retaliation from the powers of the world. So they didn't annex it. The only thing they annexed was parts of Jerusalem um, and, and a little bit of the surrounding area, saying that this is our capital and this is where we're annexing. Although they did give back ownership of the Temple Mount to the Jordanian Waqf. Now, as we mentioned, King Abdallah had given out writs of ownership. So Israel had decided um, that up until 1979, any settlements that were going to be established in this area were only established by a military writ. What did that mean? That the army would have to come and claim they needed this, a settlement there to quote-unquote secure the land. What does that mean? They decided that it would be easier if there were people moving in and out of here, there are cars on the road, there are people living here, that they could keep watch over the land instead of having a military base here, and that would help secure Israel's borders. This is many of the reasons that in the Golan Heights you have many settlements that are close to the border because they wanted those people to help secure the land, as we mentioned last week, with the farmer conflict. Then came the Menachem Begin administration, and they decided this is the first right-wing administration in the history of the country, and they decided that settlements could only be built on state-owned land. What does that mean? That no one else owns it, and that it is not private property. So they passed a time limit, and they passed a law. There was a time limit saying that anyone who doesn't come and claim the land, you can happily come and claim ownership to the land with the writs of Jordan, with the Ottoman Empire, and so on and so forth. Um, but if after that time limit, everything is going to be counted as state-owned land, and they truly did a lot of in-depth research into it, but anyone who doesn't come up until that point will forfeit their right to this land. Now, what did this mean? That means that the ability to build settlements was officially passed, but it still retained the fact that to even today, anyone who comes and claims ownership to the land will still be given that land even though we claim that everything wasn't state-owned land, as we mentioned with the compromise of the new settlement of Leviathan last week, where they're going to do another research as to whether or not it's state-owned land or it is privately owned. Now, it is still very difficult to create land, and we'll explain why in a few moments. So, just to recap a little bit. We, Israel lost the land in 1948 in the, in the Independence War, regained it in 1967, there wasn't building there for a while, and then in 1979, it was the decision made that all settlements there must be built on state-owned land, meaning that it's not privately owned land, and there was a widespread consensus as to uh, moving those lands forward, and there was a law passed as and, and research done as to what was state-owned land and what wasn't. Now, a little bit of the legal issues that faced them at the time. Because Israel decided not to annex the land, this meant that there was still a bunch of laws that were in place that were quite strange. What became of the land was a mix of Ottoman law, the law from the Ottoman Empire, from the British Mandate, and from the Jordanian um, king, kingdom. All of these laws were still in place in the land, and, they, and they still, some of them are still in place today. 
because Israel decided not to institute Israeli law on it, the law of the land stayed in place. And that is one of the main issues that we'll see moving forward that caused many of the problems. We're going to jump forward in time a little bit to 1993 and 1995, the first and second Oslo Accords. This is a move for peace by the left-wing Rabin administration and the American government um, at the time. And they decided to change the status quo in the area, hopefully to create a peace plan. Spoilers, it didn't work. They decided to create the PA, the Palestinian Authority, to govern the Arabs of the area. Everything was split into three areas, A, B, and C. So let's go through the three areas, Area A, Area B, and Area C. Area A covers approximately 18% of Judea and Samaria and is under the absolute control of the Palestinian Authority for both security and civil matters. Israelis have been forbidden to enter Area A since around the year 2000 um, and is only forced against non-Arab Jew Israeli citizens, non-Arab Israeli citizens, although the IDF did re-enter the Palestinian cities um, in Area A due to the Palestinian Authority's ineffectiveness in the face of rampant terror during the Second Intifada in the early 2000 years. Um, since then, the IDF has entered the Area A on a regular basis to eradicate and prevent terrorism. Um, this was given to the Palestinian Authority, which is the Palestinian governmental body established as part of the Oslo Accords. The PA, the PA controls almost all of the Palestinian population in Judea and Samaria and is responsible for all those civil affairs, including health care, education, economics, and so on and so forth. And so forth. Area B, which covers approximately 22% of the land, is under the control of the PA for civil matters only and under Israel's control regarding security matters. Area B includes the rural areas containing many of the villages that are smaller than the big Arab cities in the vicinity of Jewish settlements. Area C covers approximately 60% of the territory of Judea and Samaria and is under full Israeli control. Therein includes all the Jewish settlements and the roads leading to them, military fire zone, bases and open spaces. Area C is an area with territorial, territorial continuity for the protection of the state of Israel and in it live the Jews that reside in Judea and Samaria, as well as an estimated 100,000 Arabs. Um, here we come to the bodies that exist till today, which cause many of the issues for the Jewish and Arab people living in the area. So there's the GOC Central Command, um, which since the State of Israel has taken upon itself the provisions of the laws of war and international war, um, the legal authority in Judea and Samaria in accordance with the provisions of these laws is the area's military commander. In practice, the commander is the GOC uh, central command. Whoever commands this area by the army is the commander. Um, whoever sector of the army this falls in, he commands the area. Any action or change in legal status must receive his approval, whoever the, command, the army commander of this area is. As we mentioned, Israeli law does not apply in this area. Without his signature, any law on the Israeli books doesn't apply in Judea and Samaria. Um, <clears throat> the next thing we want to discuss is the civil administration. Um, in Hebrew, it's called, for those who might know, the Minhal HaEzrahi. The civil administration is a military body charging with managing the civil affairs in Judea and Samaria. Um, the various units of the civil administration serve in a role that is a quasi-government 
with each office in this quasi-government responsible for a different area of life, be it water, electricity, welfare, employment, land, um, building, and so on and so forth. Um, the civil administration also has a supervisory unit that addresses matters of law enforcement in Area C. In addition, is responsible for all the administrative aspects of Judean Samaria. They are one of the major issues that face many of the Jewish residents of these areas. They are an unelected body, mainly bureaucrats from the army, that tend to be quite corrupt um, throughout their history, um, who decide whether or not people can build something. They control all of the land. If you would like to build a house in Judea and Samaria, if you would like to uh, build in a road, if you would like to create a new settlement, they are the ones who have to approve it. They are a very ineffective body. They take a long time to produce any results. They only meet once in a while, and they are quite corrupt, as we mentioned. They usually just decide that people need to pay a certain amount, a fine, and then they can start building, or they decide that a settlement has a certain legal issue in one area, meaning that settlement will not get any new building plans until they deal with that. Okay, so... There's a couple points that I want to uh, uh, touch here that you discussed, and, and the first one would really be when you were discussing Area A. Okay, so for a reminder, Area A is the area that is controlled, um, the citizen uh, control and the army is by the uh, Palestinian Authority. Um, but the thing is that we have to specify that's not exactly accurate, because the Israeli army enters Area A a lot. Now this fluctuates within the years. There were times where we entered more, there were times where we did not enter at all because it was very dangerous. But in today's world, we have to understand that every single night there are certain missions, security missions that are done, in which we have our uh, um, elite units enter into Area A to arrest a certain uh, uh, um, person of interest, which we decide is danger, dangerous, and, and to search him, and that's something that is done, that does sometimes cause other conflicts within those cities, but in the end, the balance really understands is that we have to understand that depending on the synchronization between the Israeli army and the Palestinian authorities' security is really the level of how much we will have to interact there. As in, when we feel safe, we obviously, ideally, we prefer as an army to have them run the security there and not have to get involved, but once we feel that there is something that needs to be taken care of and we need to have a security issue which might endanger us, we do enter there even though it is run by the Palestinian Authority. That's the first point. The second point I want to ask you is you were talking about Area C, which again, a reminder, is the area that is controlled both the army and uh, the uh, citizen, um, uh, how do you say it, the, that's in charge there? The, the civil administration. The civil administration is by the, uh, the Israeli uh, government. So you're saying the Israeli law does not apply in Judea and Samaria. No, uh, which leads us really to our next topic. What is What law applies in Judea and Samaria? As we mentioned, many of the laws that existed predated the, sta the country of Israel, the state of Israel, um, exist in these laws. Um, be it the Ottoman Empire laws from the British Mandate and from the Jordanian government and so on and so forth. But because the state of Israel never annexed the territory, there are only certain Israelis' law that apply there. For example, um, Territorials law, such as real estate law and personal law that apply to the Palestinian residents of Area C, are derived from two layers of legal system, the Ottoman legal system and the Israeli legal system. Um, the Israeli legal system 
um, means that you only play a law such as income stack, supervision of products, and so on and so forth apply to areas, see? But real estate laws and building and construction laws and zoning do not apply. They only are under the civil administration, and they are the ones who decide by fiat what happens in this area um, throughout, his, um, throughout the area C. See, but what I want to understand is, as a person who lives in Judea and Samaria, in the town of Ephrat, then my day-to-day -day life seems like the laws are exactly the same. See, I drive to Jerusalem, I drive to Tel Aviv, places that are in the country, except for going over a small border where I wave to the soldier and go by. I see no effect. I pay taxes just like anyone in Israel. I have to, you know, I vote like anyone in Israel. I have basically anything I could think of. I'm going, you know, my shopping center here, my my local supermarket, Rami Levy here, is no different than the local supermarket that's in the country. Yes, it is. For You don't see the difference, but, for example, the... the um, there was a law passed a few years ago, which uh, said that you had to pay 10 agorot for each plastic bag that you got at the supermarket. That law technically did not apply in Judea and Samaria. Rami Levi decided that they were going to apply it anyway because it was um, for the environment, and any money that they made on it would go to, um, to charitable organizations. That's, for example, something that doesn't apply. Or buying a house is complicated in this area, or doing any changes in said house. Um, any modifications, any construction. There is a massive new tunnel and road that were built in this area, and the process of getting them approved was very, very difficult, and it took a very long time. Or fiber optic cables are now finally being brought to, to this area, and the cell tower that was built here um, two years ago, it took a very long time for just to it be turned on because it needed approval of the civil administration. Now this sounds like all of the benefits that we slowly get and takes a long time. I'm trying to say, is there any response, any responsibility we can think of? Anything that I need to pay for that I, oh, I live in Judea and Samaria, so I don't have to pay this. It doesn't seem like it works like well, that. For if example, I the, 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 the quote-unquote tax on uh, plastic bags that uh, was not technically applied to Judea and Samaria. It, does, it affects more people who are trying to build and, and such. Not produce law, it's more territorial law, such as real estate or, or um, civil disputes that apply in Israel, which are complicated at best when dealing with these territories. Um, the Supreme Court, in a very odd manner, had also decided that Israeli labor law does apply to, to Israelis and Palestinians working within the settlements um, by virtue of equality, and the force of international law in these areas. So one of the things that I think that is is a, a big problem and is the thing we have to discuss is really when you're talking about the, the Minhala Ezrahi, which is the civil administration the civil administration in Judea and Samaria, then, then you would say on the one hand, what's the issue? You know, this there's a, a run by the certain army here, and I think that the two main issues that this causes is one, the fact that the second the civil administration is not chosen by the people, therefore it doesn't serve the people. So the people that are sitting here that live in Judea and Samaria, they don't serve them. They're not, they have no interest in you succeeding. Now you're, so you're sitting on the luck of whether or not the head of that, of the civil administration right now is pro the settlements, against the settlements, and it shouldn't be a question of pro or against. And that connects me to the second thing, it should be a question of law. And what does that mean? The fact that in Judea and Samaria you don't have the Israeli law, okay, there's there's international legal reasons for that. It's a very complicated area. You can't just We'll get say, to that a little bit later. Right. But even if you have a Judean Samaria law that you create, okay, which is even just a set of rules, 
give it to the civil administration to make that decision, and then he could come out and say publicly, I'm going against the rules, I'm not doing it. But at least give me a set of rules, which I can then obey. And if I obey, then you will do as follows. And where does it come the most feeling? is really when you discuss, for example, the building permits. The different laws in every different area, you know, what you decides is that if the civil administration comes and says, this is a certain law, building a building up to this size, building a building in this area, expanding your house to this situation, and all these different sets of laws that I have to then obey, or saying, if you want to, uh, you know, make the entrance to your house, uh, you know, this size, or you want to expand it, then you need to do A, B, and C that I have to, that you have to obey, and then you could do it then that's okay. Even if the rules are different than Israel, at least it's rules that I can obey. The problem is that today, it's up to the decision, which means you, I can do this certain thing, my neighbor could do the exact same thing, and we could get different answers from the civil administration of whether or not it's permitted or not permitted, because they don't have to obey any rule book. So you're saying it's arbitrary. It's not just arbitrary, it's, it's, it's up to the decision that he feels, you know, and it's something that I, it's very, very hard to live your day-to-day life, not knowing what the result's going to be because it's up to the decision of the civil administration. Which can be very obvious to all of us that that can lead to major issues in corruption and scandal within these bodies that are not beholden to the people and, uh, as he said, have the ability to just create arbitrary rules for people, which leads to a very serious issue of corruption within them. Now, I just want to end to my point here is that you know, happens to be that the civil administration right now that is running Judea and Samaria is almost unequivocally a left-wing body, okay? Which is pro-the-Palestinians, constantly is going against, uh, you know, making sure to stop Jewish building while allowing and, and putting a blind eye to uh, endless amounts of, of Palestinian buildings. But my point is not with that issue. My point is that it shouldn't matter whether or not it's left or right-wing body. They shouldn't have the right to change their policies when they're not chosen chosen people, which is why I'm saying, even in my complaints towards the civil administration, I think that they're a horrific body in this country, I still would stand by my complaint if they were a, a extreme right-wing uh, uh, body. It might have been convenient for my building in my Jewish town, but I still think it would be unfair if they just allowed Jews to build and said no Palestinian can build anywhere because he also should be able to go have a set of rules that he has to obey, and if he obeys them, he should be permitted to do what he wants. Yes, so speaking of which, we failed to mention earlier, a big issue with the ABC um, split is that there's massive land grabs happening by illegal Palestinian building, um, funded a lot of times by the European Union, um, which have a goal to grab as much land as possible in a very illegal manner. Um, but before we move on to, uh, to that, there's a few more issues we have to discuss on the Oslo Accords, which is what is the status of these Jewish settlements on the lands of Judea and Samaria? Um, the issue of real estate, as we mentioned, is one of the most complex areas of Israeli law. Um, up until 1979, a, a reminder, all Jewish settlements were established by, mil by means of military um, expropriation orders with the IDF declaring that it needs the presence of Jewish communities for security issues. In 1979, the Begging decided that the new settlements could only be built on land that is not privately owned. At the same time, in likely and thorough process to mark exactly what those lands were, was carried out, led by the legal expert Plia Albeck. Um, in 2012, the government established a committee headed by uh, retired Supreme Court Justice Edmund Levy. Uh, the report of the committee, the uh, Levy report, stated that 
Jews have the right to settle anywhere in Judea and Samaria, and certainly in those parts that are under Israeli control by the virtue of the agreements with the Palestinian Authority, referring to the Oslo Accords. Um, and as to those rights in those lands, a regulation law was passed. The Law for Regulation of Settlement in Judea and Samaria is intent to formalize the status of homes built in good faith, um, partially or entirely on the land, that in retrospect turned out to not be clearly owned by the state. The law does not confiscate the land from its owner, but rather only the right to use the land. It compensates the owners by paying them 125% of the worth of the land, or alternatively offers them a land swap, giving them another parcel of land of their choosing. Um, in 2017, the High Court suspended uh, this law um, until the petitions filed against it have been heard and dealt with. Now we get to some of the major issues that faced these areas and these settlements post-Oslo Accords. Um, the issue was eminent danger. There was a lot of terror terrorist attacks and a lot of rock throwings and a general and a general heat and conflict in the area as part of the first and second intifada, um, at which we'll discuss a little bit later when Ben comes on. There was a lot of rock throwing, and eventually there was such a tension in the nation that, very sadly, the prime minister of the country was murdered over the, the Oslo Accords and the mess that happened with them. Um, Yitzhak Rabin was murdered um, uh, in, uh, by uh, a right-wing activist um, uh, uh, for the Oslo Accords. And as we mentioned, the main issues was the dangers. The roads were being shut down. It was very hard to live here. Um, pe people who came to live here at the time, it was a true commitment and sacrifice. Um, we're just going to jump a few years forward, just go over the major events that happened. The next major event is the uh, Gush Katif removal. This was another attempt at peace, this time by a quasi-supposed right-wing government led by Ariel Sharon. We may go in-depth into this specific topic on another episode. We're just going to go um, over this slightly. That the Gush Katif and all the areas uh, surrounding it um, on the uh, around Gaza were unilaterally removed um, uh, against the wish of the people. And there were massive protests at the time. Um, this was hoped to lead to peace. Spoilers, it did not. Um, it just removed everyone out and that area became another terrorist hotspot from which they could shoot at the rest of Israel. Um, the next issue we get to is the 2000, is 2008. Um, the Obama administration goes into office and there are tension in the air. A freeze happens on all building in the settlements except for one location which happens to be Efrat. Um, just a cool fact that Efrat did get building when the rest of the country was frozen. Uh, the reason for it most likely happens to be that Efrat has a large percentage of Ohio voters, which, as any American here knows, Ohio is a very important state when it comes to uh, presidential elections. Um, now, here to discuss with us some of the security issues and equipment issues facing all the, the soldiers and volunteers that are um, with us today is Ben Goldstein. And we would like to welcome our guest for this week, Ben Goldstein. Ben Goldstein is the head of Unity Warriors, the CEO of Akrav, an IDF reservist security expert, world-renowned advocate for Israel, and Israel's social media sensation. Ben has over 30,000 followers on social media, and his most viral videos have had more than 5 million views each on Facebook alone. 
Ben, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. So why don't you start really introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you do more in depth, and we'll move there to some questions. Well, I, th I think I wrote that blurb, actually, which <laughs> is, uh, it might sound egotistical, but when you're writing about yourself, um, and truthfully, all I care about beyond my family is, well, Eretz Yisrael and Am Yisrael. And amongst that is the unity between us, starting with ourselves individually, our families, our brothers, and those that we necess not necessarily like at all, and then, of course, spreading that out to the world so they can see our light and try to reflect that. Um, when people ask, like, I go, say I go to New York or whatever, L.A., which I've never been to, everybody likes to ask, especially on Shabbat, which makes me sick, but what do you do? And the answer is, what do you mean, what do I do? What do you do? Do you wake up in the morning? Do you breathe? Do you daven? Do you eat? Do you do everything a normal human being? Your work, what makes a living, shouldn't define you. Unless what you do for a living, at least as far as I'm concerned, can change the world. Um, so what I do is I try to connect people to Eretz Yisrael. I try to spread Torah from the hills of Zion. I try to make sure that our soldiers and our very close to home for you, our paramedics and medics are protected with the gear they need. And I try to bring truth and light from Israel to the world. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, so, really, I'll, you know, before we even get with the questions, I can come up and say I have a, a personal uh, uh, connection to Ben from a long time ago when I was really a soldier and a, and a medic in the area. Uh, you know, Ben actually reached out to me. He found me. I think we, we actually bumped into each other at the supermarket in the local Rami Levy. Um, and he asked me, you know, what is, what is that belt you're wearing? That, you know, how's that holding up your equipment? And I said, well, you know, really, it's something that, you know, it's what I have. And he says, okay, literally, this is the sentence. He says, meet me in my house in 20 minutes. This is my address. I've never met the person in my life. He said, meet me in 20 minutes by my house. I'm going to take care of you. And, you know, I drove there 20 minutes later, and he just started taking out equipment for things that were relevant. And, you know, one of the important things that Ben had is, is I've noticed that he's very specific to the person. So he wanted to know what it is that I need and what will help me in my, my work. And that's really the equipment that he gave me. So, um... First of all, thank you for that, sure. um, and I really think it shows uh, uh, something about it, uh, your character. So, a couple of topics that we do want to discuss with you and hear your feeling about. Um, the first one, before we get to the equipment itself, is, you know, one of the things that we have seen in the past in the research, and, you know, there's uh, organizations that also uh, give us information, is really the underreported events happening in Judea and Samaria, okay? These are events that happen in various different areas, various different uh, um, uh, in dangers and terrorist attacks, or attempted terrorist attacks that happen on a daily basis, and this is something that I'm sure that you even feel more than, than, than we do, and this is something that really is just underreported, and, and for, for various reasons, one, on the mass numbers that really people don't understand, and also, in, in our understanding of this, there's also different levels that they declare, so if someone just decided to just throw rocks at a car in the, in the middle of the road, this is something that's not reported because I guess this is not declared as a terrorist attack or, or something this level, and A, do you believe that, that this is true? And, and B, what do you think that we can do to try to make this better? Uh, without a question, it's true. On the security app that I'm a part of, you see not once or twice a day, but multiple times a day within a five-mile radius of where we're sitting right now in Biblical Ephrata, which is Bethlehem. Between here and Hebron, Hebron, which is south of us, let's say a 20-minute drive, I would say at the same spots every single day and night, whether it's 3 o'clock in the morning, midnight, 8 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there are boulders, 
bricks, Molotov cocktails, pipes, attempted lynchings on the roads that King Solomon once rode down and King David his father. And to me that isn't just sad and embarrassing, it's pathetic that we, the children of the Maccabees, the town I live in is called Eleazar for God's sakes. He was known for his bravery. We're only here because he took out an elephant, which was a beast of war that the Jewish people, his brothers and fighters, didn't think they could destroy. And because of his action of bravery, we're only sitting here today drinking beautiful cold water with a beautiful fan overhead with electricity instead of being dust and ashes and relegated to the dustbin of history. So I believe that the only way to achieve peace is through strength and victory. It isn't my words, it goes back to Latin, Greek, ancient Chinese, Sun Tzu, art of war. It all goes down to the basics. If you allow those that call for your genocide to stand up and raise their heads and breathe at all, you lost. I don't believe in that. I know that attacks are underreported. I know that attacks are not given, the attacks are not given the light they deserve. Um, I don't believe that anybody should ever downplay uh, the, the missiles and projectiles that are thrown every single day and night at our children's heads as we drive down the street on Route 60 throughout Judea and Samaria and other places. I believe that anybody who decides to actively pick up a brick, a stone, a pipe, a Molotov cocktail and launch it at us because we're Jews in order to murder us, I believe, just like we're told in the Torah, we need to rise up first and destroy them. The problem is we live in a world where, and I'm looking at Superman as I say this on the wall, and Batman, we live in a world where people have forgotten that there's evil. Where to say the word evil is actually equated to the word Zionism. Whereas the term, and I can't say it, but Palestine or Palestinian is considered freedom and rightful. So we live in a topsy-turvy world where evil is good and good is evil. But that just tells me one thing, that Nevoah, prophecy, is coming true. The trees are blooming, the grapes are growing, we live in splendor. This is heaven on earth and I guarantee both of you wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You would trade one of your appendages not to leave this land. I would. You'd have to drag me out of here, kill me, to get me out of here to move from this land. And that's what it's going to take for this entire nation. So yes, they're throwing rocks. Yes, they're launching rockets. Yes, they're throwing Molotov cocktails. Yes, they're lynching Jews in Yerushalayim and in Yafo and everywhere else. And yes, Jews are being lynched throughout the world. But there is absolutely nowhere else in the world I'd rather be. I feel safer letting my daughter and my children play at night, all day and all night, anywhere in this land than I would anywhere outside of it. So they will continue to throw rocks and they will continue to stab us and they'll continue to kill us as long as we're not united. It's written in the Torah. It's not politics. Placards and signs will not help you. Mass demonstrations and rallies will not help you. Shut your mouth. Stop speaking the Shonara. Hug your brother and sister. Open up your arms to the Jew and to the Gentile and to the proselyte, just like God tells us in the Torah. And then these little nomads, these little gypsies amongst the Arab world will no longer exist amongst us because that evil will no longer threaten us because we'll have overcome that spiritually. Take my word on it. It's 4,000 years strong. Wonderful. Okay, so um, thank you for that, that answer. And I think it leads me to, to a, a short question I'm going to add in here, which is, you know, on the one hand, when underreporting obviously has its issues and then, and then it causes, you know, less security measures and, and not dealing with the issue. 
do you think that there might be a positive side to it? And and if if not, then what do you think that you know if you report every one of these rock throwings publicly and it's in the newspaper every day, do you think that you know especially to our listeners, many of them abroad, that we really want them to come to this area and live in this area? So as me as someone living in this area, it's very easy to know that I feel safe and I know this place is safe. But if I saw in the newspaper every single day the tens of uh, you know events that are happening on the road here, do you think that that might cause people to not want to come here or feel unsafe coming to this area? It's a good question, and it's a fair question. I, my immediate reaction is to emotionally jump at you and say I could care less what they think. If they choose not to come to Eretz Yisrael because of what they read in the news, yet they desire to reside in Chicago, L.A., and New York, then they're not seeing the same crime stats that I am. Now, I don't dislike, hate, or judge anyone for not living in Eretz Yisrael. I believe that any Jew not living in Eretz Yisrael is missing the boat. I believe that they're not just missing the boat for some future safety reason. That's not why we live here. I believe that just like it says in Shema, it's like Shemayim Bar. It's like this is heaven on earth. To live anywhere else, you have to be insane as far as I'm concerned. So to underreport, to not. My children go to a school where when there's terrorist attacks, brutal attacks, they're, they're, they discuss it with the children first thing foremost. They don't hide anything. And that taught me a lesson of which I wasn't used to growing up outside of these borders. Sheltering your children to the point where they do not understand that evil exists brings us to where we are in the world today. Showing your children that evil exists and showing them that they can rise above it, grow in strength and not let their fear destroy them and channel that fear from darkness into light and lead others to do the same. That's how you raise heroes that rise above and beyond any Superman or Batman could ever be. These are real heroes. And these are the people that I swear I stand on their shoulders. Show me an eight-year-old kid here in Israel standing at a bus stop where three boys were kidnapped and that kid is hitchhiking, that kid is a boss player, and I would go to the ends of the earth to protect him, because that's our future. And that doesn't exist outside of this land. If you can show me a place that has what Israel has, I'll gladly go there and kiss the ground when I land on the tarmac. But no other place in the world exists like that. Couldn't agree more. Um, okay, so I want to move on to, to back to the topic of equipment, which is really a, lo um, a lot of what you, you do so many things, but, but uh, uh, one of the main pillars that you deal with, which is really helping soldiers get, uh, soldiers and medics in, in the area of Judea and Samaria get better equipment. And, and my question to you is, you know, on the one hand, you know, in the end, as we uh, discuss um, um, in this episode overall, going through the, the area of Judea and Samaria and the history and, and the, the current situation, you know, so... These areas in the end have this balance between the IDF, which is, you know, in charge of the area and in general in charge of the equipment for the soldiers in the area, to um, the, the townships, which are in charge of their security in their borders, to really volunteers in the area and the other uh, foundations that are helping them get those equipment. So it seems to me that there are three pillars that are, that are separately, uh, uh, you know, in, in somewhat overlapping in certain areas. And my question to you is, you know, as, as, you know, if we go back to the story I shared with you, on the one hand, you know, you're helping, you know, help me out with equipment, which tr helped me tremendously, and you're helping many people tremendously, but do you feel that some of those things really should be dealt with by the Army? Do you think, to one more specific point is, for example, security cameras that are, you know, around different area, different towns, you know, or, or different security equipment for, for the uh, inner city uh, uh, security, which I know you help with as well, is... Is that not responsibility of the IDF to take care of that equipment? And if we do bring that equipment, for example, drones 
for the kabat, the security uh, of, of the town, you know, that could overlap with something the army's trying to do and it could end up causing more harm. How do you feel about that and what do you think? Well, the last sentence, that? I don't know where you got that from. Um, I, we gave a, a thermal drone to Kisufim. Kisufim is one of the hardest hit communities on the Gaza border. We take care of over 30, no, over 40 communities on the Eshkol region with their security equipment. Um, and the IDF is actually calling the head of security for Kisufim, asking him to fly his drone for them when there's an incident. Right, and do you think... So it doesn't necessarily overlap in a negative way. And where I could, where, where I know what you're asking, what you're asking is, let's say, which I've given, thank God, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, let's say flashlights. You could ask, well, let's say you give a flashlight to a combat soldier or officer. Doesn't that, you know, A, sh shouldn't the IDF give them flashlights? B, I can't believe the IDF wouldn't supply them with flashlights. Mm -hmm. All the billions they get? Come on now, are you kidding me? With all the money I ride to the FIDF every year, where's that money going? Well, I can answer that. Go ask a thousand soldiers, A, if they've ever even heard of that organization, most of them have not. B, most organizations cannot give certain types of equipment away. They just can't do it. It's against their charter. But C, why don't the soldiers have flashlights by the IDF? It's simple. Like any army in the world, just like in the Gulf War in America, U.S. Marines were privately fundraising for body armor because they weren't being funded properly at the time. So to here, yes, the IDF does have flashlights. But as you know quite well, and as, again, not, not emotions or my opinion, take a hundred soldiers and just look at their rifles, and you'll see out of the hundred, maybe seven or eight have flashlights. Out of those seven or eight, six of them were issued by the IDF, which should have been retired 15 years ago. They're old, they're 200 lumen G2 flashlights. They just don't work the way a modern flashlight should. Now, why is that important? What's the big deal about a flashlight? Can I go to Walmart and buy a flashlight for $19.99? You slap that on a rifle and you fire one round, the recoil is going to destroy that flashlight. You try to go into a village where every wall is a stone block and you run that flashlight into a wall, you're going to destroy that flashlight. Well, we give officers, just for instance, the flashlights alone, what we give soldiers is enough to where their entire team is behind them in the alleyways in these villages searching for terrorists at night because the kid or the officer that I gave that flashlight to is the only one with it. And it's so powerful that the terrorists on the rooftops can no longer hide when they throw, as you know, dead donkey carcasses at our soldiers' heads or blocks of marble that weigh 80 kilos on their heads because now we see them. So. Sometimes it's as simple as giving somebody like you the right bandage that you turn around and you save an Arab's life with on the road that just got into a traffic accident or a young Israeli's life with. That's enough for me to justify why I do what I do every day, seven days a week, 365, since those three boys were kidnapped on June 12th, 2014. That's enough to justify it for me. Why people don't give it to them? Why organizations decide to pay their CEOs a million dollars a year and fill their offices with artwork all over the world instead of making sure that Muslim Zionist IDF soldiers like my friend and brother Yahya Mahmoud when he was a soldier actually had warm clothes, actually had food in his refrigerator? They don't care about that. What they care about, and I guarantee you this, and I'm willing to go on the record in front of them, 
And right now, if I send one one set, I'll have 5,000 soldiers backing me up. I got power, bro. I'll have an entire, I'll have brigades backing me up on this. From the highest ranking to the lowest. If you know that you have a soldier that is dirt poor and they don't have money to get through the month and the IDF isn't helping them, they call me. And just this week we gave a thousand shekels completely without anybody knowing to a, a captain who gave it to a soldier because the IDF didn't have the ability to pay him this month. They're paying him double next month. But how is his mom going to eat and feed her children on Shabbat? And I'm going to show you this text message afterwards. This is so real and so beautiful that it goes down to that soldier's brothers and sisters that they get their Nikes and their school uniforms to go to school. So that soldier, instead of biting his nails at the junction that my friend and your friend Ari was killed at, at the junction where I have a lot of personal experience at, that soldier is paying attention and guarding our children instead of worrying about his brothers and sisters and mother. It's to that level, brother. It isn't just gear. It's to show these heroes how much we give a damn. Enough of the bureaucracy, enough of the red tape, enough of parading them around like show ponies on stages in Beverly Hills while they give roses to rich people. Rich people need to be shining the boots of these heroes. That's what we do. I shine their damn boots if I have to. They're going to know they have an address. So, but... Giving all these money to the soldiers is beautiful and it helps them tremendously, especially those who need it. But as to the equipment itself, have you ever had a scenario where you felt that the IDF became dependent on you? They saw that no. you were giving um, equipment so they didn't, felt they didn't have to. No, no, no. The IDF, they know what I do. I've, it's not new. Um, I used to, there used to be companies that would ask me to hold up a sign thanking them for supplying certain equipment. Generals called this guy who's also like a high-ranking guy and said look you can't do that now Let me just back up for a second. It's very interesting that I can't have a soldier really say thank you to me for providing them with running shoes underwear Winter gear, but other organizations can have soldiers prance around on stages after they fly them halfway around the world on airplanes And that's okay. There's an issue here when certain organizations consider themselves the only registered and official organization that can help supply Israeli soldiers. That, my friends, is called a monopoly in every business in the whole world, and that's considered illegal. And these organizations try to push other organizations who are really trying to do good. I mean, there's organizations, there's very few, but there are a couple out there, there's like one out there that I know that's local, that does great work for soldiers. Direct to soldiers. You already know the organization I'm probably talking about. They're real. They're legit. They get it. The IDF isn't looking at me and going, okay, that guy gave out 12 flashlights today. Good stuff, man. Top in the world. That way we don't have to give it out. No, but it is quite possible that after the IDF saw enough helmets going around or enough protective helmets and vests, that maybe somebody somewhere got the idea to place a larger order. But I don't care about that. All I care about is that the officer that we're protecting is protected, that he's a better leader for his soldiers, that the soldiers are better soldiers because of it, that the paramedics and medics can save lives. That's all, man. Nothing else matters to me. Organizations don't matter to me. As long as they stay out of my business, I'll stay out of theirs. They try to get in my business, I'll get up in theirs. Now, to, to all our listeners that, that you know, are probably on the edge of their seat saying, this is incredible, like, you know, some of them might, not, might, might have not even know this is happening. And all this uh, 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 need and, and beautifulness was there, you know, and they're, they're sitting there saying, 
How can we participate? Or what is it that we should be doing? Move to Israel. You want me to tell you to write a check? Every organization right now would sit up straight. The fundraiser would straighten his or her tie or, or, or pants or skirt. And they'd say, well, you can make a tax-deductible donation. It's so just gross already. Stop alleviating your guilt by writing checks. Stop. Nobody's going to talk to you like this because they're all afraid of you. Because they're all afraid they're not going to meet their numbers. I know that all of my sustenance comes from Hashem. I'm not crazy. I don't even wear a kippah for a very strong reason. To teach people lessons to ask questions. And when they get answers of spirituality and Torah and growth from somebody that they didn't expect, they learn not to judge their brother. It's to that level that I'm trying to explain to you, all of my brothers and sisters that are listening to this. Please stop writing checks to alleviate guilt. Strap on your big boy shoes. Strap on your big girl shoes. Come home. You want to help? Put boots on the ground. You want to help? Come plant trees with us and possess this land. You want to help? Fine. You can come. You can write a check. But it's not going to stop there for you. Because I'm going to show you where this went. You're going to see the paramedics and medics and soldiers saying thank you. You're going to see where your trees are planted. You're going to hear the Torah being spoken from the hills of Zion. You're going to hear your name being mentioned at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. This well, is as real as it gets. <laughs> it really is as real as it gets. And, you know, we're going to head towards the end of our interview here. And I, and I want, first of all, to our listeners, if you have any uh, other questions or, or uh, uh, if you'd like to really uh, contact uh, Ben either through us, you're more than welcome to contact us and we will uh, definitely uh, forward your questions uh, to Ben and give you those answers. And if they want to be able to contact you directly, how do they get to you? You can go to unitywarriors.com, just like it's spelled. It's all very clear there, what we do, what we are, what we have to offer. I have my Facebook and YouTube, which you can find off of the website. And not only that, I don't ask you, I'm not a, an evangelist standing on a stage telling you to write a check and, and God will bless you a hundred times. God will bless you simply for closing your mouth and not speaking ill about your neighbor. God will bless you for blessing Israel. Just right now, close your eyes and say, bless Israel. And you've satisfied a positive commandment from the Torah that's over 4,200 years strong that God gave to Moses and Moses gave to the people, to the world. That's what I want you to know. That you don't have to think that this is something that is unattainable. You don't have to think that Aliyah is unattainable. You don't have to think that Torah and changing yourself is unattainable. It's all right there, ready for you waiting. So please, just get on the bandwagon. Please join us at unitywarriors.com. Please just share the videos that we offer. And if you do want to join us financially as a partner, I promise you, you'll be a part of a private group on Telegram. And you're going to see things that you don't see normally. You're going to see videos on Israel that will inspire you every day. This isn't your normal run-of-the-mill organization. This is Israel. This is the light of Israel. That's the truth of it. Ben, thank you very much for joining God us. God bless you guys. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And Hashem should bless all of your listeners to continue to listen to you guys and to come home, come home, come home. Make Aliyah. Amen. Thank you very much. Amen. So now that we've seen the current status of the land, it's important to look at some of the suggestions that face us today. What are the solutions and suggestions? During the Trump administration, there was a suggestion on the ground, and there was truly hope for it, and the right-wing activists really wanted it, saying it's time to annex the land and announce what is called in Hebrew, ribunut, or in English, sovereignty over the land. Now, what does this mean? Um, this means 
really that it's it's a very complicated legal matter. But what it means, full sovereignty, would mean that all of the land within Judea and Samaria and, and in general would become a full part of the state of Israel. The civil administration would be shut down. Um, they would no longer have any power. All laws would immediately apply to the state of Israel. This, of course, would cause a legal issue um, and so on and so forth. There were quite a few planned suggestions on how to do this, especially with the Arabs living in this area. Some um, were uh, hoping for them to voluntarily emigrate to somewhere else with quite a lot of um, Israeli assistance. Um, some would give a, a, a Palestinian national aspiration, swear loyalty, and get citizenship or get a path to citizenship. Um, but the main point here would be that even just all of the land in Area A would become available to start building immediately. Now, sadly, this is not an actual option because not that even if it was sovereignty was announced, because even if we take the Golan Heights and the Galil, um, which we announced sovereignty over, and and the Jordan Valley, um, also a part that we announced um, sovereignty order over, even their building is still very difficult as it is with the rest of Israel. You cannot just go in and, and create a new settlement easily. It's still a process that is too difficult to um, too difficult uh, for what it should be. Sadly, um, because of internal issues in this country and because of um, endless elections, um, the window for sovereignty at the time has closed. Had closed. Uh, the American elections had happened. There was no longer such a friendly administration in place. Um, and it looks like we'll be returning to the Obama years with, a, sadly, a freeze on building. This goes to reflect on the political issues on the matter. Because... Although the right would love to claim that this is all Bennett's fault and him not building, he appears to be doing exactly what the Likud government did, which was bad on its own. The time has come for someone with a backbone to stand up and say this land is ours, we're going to build. Even if you don't want to build new settlements, expand the ones that are already there. This land was already sectioned off. The legal problems were met. Go and build. Don't be a coward and start dealing with the issues at hand. It cannot be that the Israeli government goes and claims that the Arab, the Palestinians have the Oslo Accords that protect them from any Israeli issues on the matter when they have not held the Oslo Accords since the day they were signed. The Oslo Accords were meant to bring peace. Peace, that was the main stipulation of, of Israel on the Oslo Accords. And that Israel will be able to build freely in the area A. That has not happened. Area C, sorry. That has not happened. And as such, any rights granted by the Oslo Accords should be forfeited. Because a treaty or a contract has to go both ways. If one side breaks a contract, it is null and void. Whilst getting um, sovereignty, it would be very difficult with this government with the left-leaning members of this government, especially with an Arab party and Meretz sitting in this government, it's also an unprecedented opportunity. Allow me to explain. If we go and we look at this government, this so-called left-leaning government, and they decided to announce sovereignty, the courts aren't going to stop them. The courts are left-leaning. They want this government to succeed. The American administration won't stop them. 
Because as much as the American administration won't like this idea, they hit B.B. Moore. They're scared of B.B. Moore. The last thing they could possibly want, as we mentioned in previous episodes, this government has a lot of power by the fact that they're weak. By the fact that they are unstable, if they tip this government over and cause them to collapse, the American government will fear that, this administration. So if you get sovereignty passed and recognized under a left-wing American administration and a left-ish, center-left-wing Israeli government, that can cause a greater recognition than under a right-wing government or even a right-wing American government or Republican government. And with that, we will head to the conclusion of our episode. Uh, we thank you all for listening. We'd like to thank Ben Goldstein again for joining us. Uh, we will state again, this was a this is a very complicated uh, topic that has uh, been discussed and being dealt with for uh, many, many years and will probably dealt with for many years to come. Uh, we hope you gave we gave you the uh, simplest picture uh, of the situation and uh, I'd like to thank Benjamin for the extensive research he's done to be prepared for this episode. Um, obviously, we m did not hit all the points and there are many more things to add and if you have uh, more questions or pointers or corrections you'd like to make, please feel free to email us at hwga.pod.gmail.com and we will definitely uh, uh, be in touch and contact you back. And also, if we see there are important points that we need to correct, then we will do so as well uh, in the next week's episode. So again, we thank you very much. We will see you next week. This is Here We Go Again.